0: Okay, God in heaven, thank you for this privilege to study together, uh, to kind of set up our class next week on the topic of the three angels' messages and what the world is so desperately needing right now. I pray that you would bless us as we reflect upon our history and the history of the nation of Israel and what lessons we can learn from it. And we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so what I'm gonna be sharing with you is based upon uh, some books that one of our students from last year, their dad, talked me into buying uh, at GYC Northwest. One of them is called 40 Years in the Wilderness in Type and Anti-Type by Taylor Bunch. And the other is called the Exodus in the Avent Movement in Type and Anti-Type. This, the Exodus and the Avent Movement is basically an extended version of this smaller thing here and uh, of the 40, days, 40 Years in the Wilderness. And Taylor Bunch is kind of making a connection between the real issues uh, and the parallels between the Avent Movement and the Exodus and how that's relevant to us today, and it was super good. Um, I got asked to speak at this event I was telling you guys about in the wilderness last week, uh, south of Joshua Tree, out in the desert. And the topic I was assigned to preach on was on, like, Numbers 13 and 14. I was like, Anil's already preached on this twice, and by the time I'm going to preach Sunday morning, like, I don't know if this is really... And I started reading this book, I was like, hey, Wade, can I do this instead? And I told him what it was, and he gave me the all all good. And so... um, yeah, 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 I hope that you guys will be really blessed by this. So I want to kind of build a connection based upon what Bunch is mentioning in his books. This is largely borrowed, these themes or these principles, uh, but we need to hear them even today. Basically, the Taylor Bunch was born in 1885, I believe. So he would have been a three-year-old when Minneapolis happened, uh, the 1888 General Conference in Minneapolis, but um, around 1828 or so, he was doing work on this. Basically... Two years after A.G. Daniels wrote his book, Christ Our Righteousness, which was uh, published by, uh, basically, A.G. Daniels was commissioned to write. Uh, In 1924, nine years after the death of Ellen White, the Ministerial Association Advisory Council voted to have A.G. Daniels, former General Conference President, by the way, probably the best General Conference President we ever had, um, arrange a compilation of Ellen White's writings on the subject of justification by faith. And as he began his exhaustive research, he was amazed and awed with the solemn obligation resting upon him. This is from the foreword of the 40 Years in the Wilderness book. And um, this kind of gave him the settled conviction that this was something that has to be brought before the people of God and that something horrible happened in Minneapolis uh, in our response to the 1888 message and that we're, we're still reaping the consequences of that. And so, Bunch reads Daniel's book and kind of builds on it. Uh, Taylor Bunch was the pastor of the South Lancaster Church, um, which was uh, where we used to have our college area that no longer exists anymore, Atlantic Union College. And then he was also the pastor of the church in um, Tacoma Park. So he pastored some of our larger university congregations. And um He did a week of prayer, both week of prayers, the fall and the spring week of prayers at PUC, and there was a massive revival as a result of it. Massive amount of conversions and revivals that was very similar to what happened in 1889 right after the General Conference session when Jones did a week of prayer at South Lancaster Academy and every kid was converted, Ellen White says. Like every single soul was converted as a result of those meetings. And so we're gonna give you guys a book club book. It's kind of big, but you can listen through it to get through it by Ron Duffield. I'll tell you about it later. And he has two chapters committed uh, in that book to those 1889 revivals, and it will blow your mind. Like literally, Pentecost was happening in the Seventh-day Adventist church, and the latter rain was falling already in the Advent church. And the loud cry was being given forth, miracle healings were happening, revivals, world missions was going up, education was thriving, the medical missionary work was thriving, and it was all synergizing around the preaching of this message. And so... um, Yeah, so we're going to kind of walk it through some parallels of this because I think it's super important. So we're told in the writings of the Spirit of Prophecy that there are definite connections with the nation of Israel and the Advent movement. So we're going to look through some of those today here in just a moment. um, And we'll uh, be leaning on these two resources from bunch where a lot of this content came from. Okay, And there's there's going to be a list on this. I'll give it to you. I'm going to give you these notes and, and the name of these books is in there if that's what you're asking for. Yeah. 40 Years in the Wilderness in Type and Anti-Type, and the Exodus and Advent Movement in Type and Anti-Type. This bigger book is basically the content he was sharing in those week of prayers at PUC that led to this massive revival. Um, A good chunk of it was. So, this is what Ellen White says. All three of these quotes are from the fifth volume of the Testimonies. Again, I'll give you my manuscript so you can have it. It's not really a very good-looking manuscript, but the content's good. But uh, fifth volume of the Testimonies, page 75, Ellen White says this, I have been shown that the spirit of the world is fast leavening the church. You are following the same path as did ancient Israel. This is the same falling away from your holy calling as God's peculiar people. So she's giving a stern warning that was similar to the issues that happened with the nation of Israel. This is fifth volume of the testimonies, page 94. The sin of ancient Israel was in disregarding the will of God and following their own way according to the leadings of unsanctified hearts. Modern Israel are fast following in their footsteps and the displeasure of the Lord is surely resting upon them. Strong stuff. Fifth volume of the testimonies page 456. The same disobedience and failure which were seen in the Jewish church have characterized in a greater degree the people who have had this great light from heaven in the last message of warning. Shall we let the history of Israel be repeated in our own experience? Okay, so she's giving solemn charges here. Pick up 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Okay, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is kind of set the course for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we'll read verses 1 through 12. The Apostle Paul makes the same connection that she just made. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Okay? Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Who's, who's he talking about? Ancient Israel. Ancient Israel. Okay? All ate, verse 3, the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play." Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for whose admonition? For our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come, and then listen to verse 12. This is the context of a verse you quote all the time, and we skip the context and jump straight to verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed. Why? Lest he fall. So we are given a solid and strong admonition. Do not think you've got it all together because you can fall just like the nation of Israel fell. That's the context of verse 12 that, again, we largely overlook. Yes, ma'am? Did we say before we before started? We did. Did we? Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then because I had Neil hit play. Uh huh. Thank you. And so um, we're covered in blessings. So that's the context for verse twelve: is that we could fall in the very same ways the nation of Israel fell if we think we've arrived. Which, in and of itself, is a strong and fervent call to us to receive the Laodicean message, right? Because the the main impetus in the Laodicean message is that you're not who you think you are. at every aspect of your being, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and otherwise. And we are in grave danger if we think we have arrived, because the Laodicea in church says that I'm rich and have need of nothing. But what you don't know is you're poor, miserable, blind, and naked. But the good news is Jesus offers a solution in himself. He says, I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, a faith that works by love, Galatians tells us. White raiment, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and lastly, is the hard one for you and I, ISAV, spiritual discernment to recognize our true condition. Yeah. So we're given a strong and solemn warning from the history of the nation of Israel, grumbling against the messengers that were sent, grumbling against the reproofs that God was trying to give them, right? So we're counseled to pay close attention to the narrative that we're talking about right now. And uh, there are important lessons for our admonition. Now, Let's look at some of the parallels between what happened with the nation of Israel when they came out of the wilderness and what we see in the formation of the Advent movement, okay? The first one is this. The times of arrival were prophesied before they came to pass. Okay, so 400 years before the nation of Israel came out in their exodus, God speaks to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And he tells him, your people will be oppressed, your offspring will be oppressed for four generations, for 400 years and then they're going to plunder their captives as they leave. I will talk about Genesis 15 more than once with you, so I'm not going to break that down a bunch right now. The same thing happens at the end of the 2300-year prophecy, that a movement is going to awaken, right, that will go forth and do a work to warn the world before Jesus comes. So the Advent movement and the movement of the Exodus for the nation of Israel going into the Promised Land and the Advent movement going into the Promised Land were both prophesied on when they would arrive and do what they would do both of those were prophesied in the old testament okay here's the next one ancient israel was delivered from egyptian bondage that they might serve god and keep his laws for the same purpose is modern israel called out of spiritual babylon now bunch makes the interesting connection between egypt and having a man at its head and being a religious and political power to Babylon at the close of time with the pope okay so Bunch makes the connection between the two, and I think it's a sound connection. Both of them represent unbelief and religious confusion and works-based religion, right? Both of them represent these types of approaches. And so he makes the connection that I think is very valid and solid, okay? So modern Israel was called out of spiritual Babylon, right? And they were called to serve God and keep his laws. We see the same thing in both movements. You are following that so far? Okay, here's the next one. Both started in a good trajectory in seeing their need of God and finding revival, right? The founders of their movement saw that. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saw their need of that. We also see that in the early church and the foundation of the Christian church, right? The very foundation of of the founding fathers. But they both eventually experienced a falling away and drifted largely into paganism. So when the early church is founded, you go through the 1260 years in the wilderness. It's an ugly time. The 400 years when Israel was in Egypt were not a pretty time for them religiously. They were losing their identity of what they were believing, how they were worshiping, and so forth, because of oppression that they were dealing with, right? We see that in both movements, and, uh, and they eventually adopted this, the day of uh, sun worship, right? They were worshiping the sun in Egypt, And were largely forced to do so and lost track of the Sabbath. And the main day of worship coming through the dark ages ended up being worshiping on the day of the sun, right? So there's similar parallel journeys in both of these situations. Both were prophesied to go through a very dark experience of persecution, and it would be the worst before the deliverance. Again, we saw that in Genesis chapter 15, and we see it in Daniel 8 and Revelation 12 regarding the 1260 days. And both didn't really begin to receive freedom until about 30 years after their prophecy of their oppression ending, which is also very fascinating because the nation of Israel was actually in Egypt for 430 years. Okay? It took another 30 years for them to get out of there. And when you look at the timeline of the day pro- or the, the 1,260 years of persecution that the nation of Israel or the, that the people of God went through during the Dark Ages, when does that end? When does the 1,260-year prophecy end? Like what date? Oh, uh, 1798. 1798. And 30 years after that, right? Around the time of 1828 begins the real time of deliverance for the people of God of the message of light and uh, truth coming before the world and before the people. Right? You see the conversion of William Miller and kind of the foundings of the Advent movement um, before he was preaching. So, around a similar timeline, <clears throat> not exactly 30 years, but around that general timeline. Both stories were to deliver God's people out of Egypt and Babylon and unbelief and a bad picture of God, right? When Moses got into Egypt, people felt forsaken of God. They didn't even know what his name was, let alone how to worship him, right? And their picture now of religion was that we have to do deeds of obedience to appease the gods so that they will favor us. They were largely in an Egyptian mindset. Right? And we saw the same thing, gross darkness overshadowing the people of God, coming out of the Dark Ages. Right, This nasty, gnarly, grotesque picture of God. Um, there's, a, there's a phrase that C.S. Lewis uses of like the uglification of the picture of God. Right, And um, so it was to be a reformation to the original faith of the Founding Fathers was required. Right? So whenever God called the nation of Israel out of Egypt, he was reminding them and reinstilling within them and rekindling the faith of their founding fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is one of the reasons why he referred to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Reminding them, these are your genes. These are your, this is the trajectory of your history. Same thing with the Advent movement, right? Reminding people, rekindling and reawakening those original foundational beliefs that the, Advent, or that the early church had, right? Because, you know, a lot of things have been lost sight of during that season. Both movements experience delay of the promise out of God's mercy to seek and to reach the lost, okay? There's there's a form of delay that takes place um, as they're striving towards Canaan land, and it's because God doesn't want people to be lost, and so if the nation isn't believing the message that God has given them, he's going to have to wait until they do to do the work they're called to do, right? Because the world needs that message. So listen to this. This is from Taylor Bunch. He says, the probation of the world cannot close so that the saints can inherit the earth and occupy the territory of modern nations until they have filled up the cup of their iniquity. This is one reason for the delay in the fulfillment of God's promises to the Advent people. Remember in Genesis 15, God says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. They have not crossed a place in which they could not be saved, and he's giving them time to respond. This is part of the reason for the tarrying time. Now, Peter says this in one of his epistles, that the, God, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He picks up on that same thing. Is it 2 Peter three nine? Yeah, it's that same premise, right, that he picks up on that. And so, Bunch makes this connection. They cannot have possession of the promised land, this earth in its redeemed state, until the inhabitants of the earth have rejected the last call and send away their grace. You see that? Okay, similar parallel journeys here as well. Both lost sight of the Sabbath in their captivity and oppression, and part of the reformation that God worked for them was to bring them back to keeping Sabbath, to re-engage them in true biblical worship. Okay, they weren't keeping Sabbath in Egypt at this stage when Moses and Aaron go into there to call people out. And we'll get into more of that here in just a moment. And the same thing, that had been largely lost sight of, apart from the Waldensians and, you know, small pockets of people, it had largely been lost sight of during the Dark Ages, right, Sabbath observance had. Okay, yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. and all right, listen to this one. The statement, let my people go, was used nine times from Exodus 5 to Exodus 10. Nine times God says, let my people go. These are my people. Let them go. And why is it that he wants them to let them go? What else is in that statement? Do you remember? When Moses goes before Pharaoh, he says, let my people go so that they can worship me. Right? And the very interesting thing is in Revelation chapter 8, the call that God gives in the fourth angel's message, which Ellen White refers to, it's the loud cry, she refers to it as a repetition of the third angel's message, is to come out of her, my people. Let my people go, come out of her, my people, and what's the call to do? It's a call to worship, and to worship in the way that God intended and, and ordained from, from eternity past. Do you see that? Okay, so it's a very similar call in both accounts. He's calling people out to worship him in both accounts. Moses and Aaron were calling the people to observe Sabbath while they were still in Egypt. Did you know that? Go to Exodus chapter 4. 5, sorry. Go to Exodus chapter (laughs) 5. Exodus 5, beginning in verse 4. Take a deep breath. Just keep it moving. (laughs) Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. So Moses and Aaron were actually calling the people to stop working on Sabbath. And this infuriated Pharaoh, which leads Pharaoh to enact laws and decrees and oppressive policies to keep them from being able to keep Sabbath. He made Sabbath keeping impossible for them. He took their straw away from them and made them work even harder, right? And so he brought them through this process. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many, and you make them rest from their labor, verse 5, okay? And so uh, it's also trickled throughout verses 5 to 14. That's the main one I want to point out there is verses 4 and 5, or 5, yeah, 4 and 5, Okay? So Bunch picks up again. He says, Moses and Aaron tried to teach the Israelites to observe the Sabbath in Egypt. Resting on the Sabbath made Pharaoh angry, and he issued a decree that made Sabbath-keeping impossible in Egypt. The, the other commands of the law of God could be more easily observed. The test came on the Sabbath commandment, and Sabbath-keeping brought oppressive legislation and persecution. Israel was called out of Egypt that they may observe the Sabbath and obey God's whole law. To Israel, the Sabbath became the test of obedience and the sign of obedience. And this happened a month before the law was given at Sinai, which is an important point, right? The the law wasn't enacted at Sinai. God wanted this all along. Happened again in Exodus chapter 14, whenever God's telling them, how long do you disobey my commandments whenever someone went out to find manna on Sabbath and there wasn't any manna to be found on Sabbath. Okay. He was giving this information in this process before there even was a Mount Sinai presentation. Okay. Listen to this. When the law was proclaimed from the Mount, the Sabbath was placed in the very center. Okay. So when the Ten Commandments were read, in the very center of the Ten Commandments, there are 146 words on each side of the statement. Seventh day is the Sabbath, he says. So when you put all the words together and how many words you can count in the Sabbath commandment, there's 146 on one side of seventh day is the Sabbath and 146 words on the other side of seventh day is the Sabbath. So the very center of the law, word count wise, is seventh day is the Sabbath. And then he makes a very interesting statement. Uh, Well, not exactly, but it's in the center, okay? Because chiasms have repeating themes leading up to it. And that's not the case in the Ten Commandments. Okay, just because something's in the middle wouldn't necessarily make it a chiasm. Yeah, but it is a point of emphasis in that sense. So he says this, Dr. Adam Clark said that the law was first spoken from Sinai on the Sabbath. So this is a historian, Dr. Adam Clark, that's literally saying that when God spoke to the people on Mount Sinai and gave them the Ten Commandments, it was on the Sabbath when he did that. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. And the law was first spoken from Sinai on the Sabbath and that Pentecost was a memorial of that event. The law was placed in the center of the ark. The ark was in the center of the holy of holies of the sanctuary, which was in the midst of the priestly tribe, which was in the midst of the camp of Israel. And the Lord placed Israel in the center of the world. People who were in Europe and Asia had to go through Israel to get down to Egypt, as we talked about before, and from the continent of Africa up into the main part of the world. So he's saying the very thing at the very center, at the very center, at the very center of their economy, of their worship, of their the layout of their, their tribes, tribes, the layout of the sanctuary itself, and in the most holy place, and in the most uh, essential part of the law itself, was a call back to worship God as he intended on the Sabbath. It's a foundational element, the very midst of everything that they believe and do, okay? Then he makes this point that modern Israel will face a similar test regarding the Sabbath where it will be made impossible to keep Sabbath without severe consequences. Do we believe that's coming? Absolutely. Are there connections and parallels between the nation of Israel and us? You better believe it. Bunch picks up again. He says religious laws will eventually become so oppressive that the sentence of death will be visited upon the violators. It isn't so difficult to observe the other nine commandments in modern Babylon, but it's impossible to keep the Sabbath and remain where the opposition is so bitter and the persecution so great. As God called the children of Israel out of Egypt that they might keep his Sabbath, so he calls out his people out of Babylon that they may not worship the beast or his image. Okay, And uh, I won't read that part. This is interesting. How many plagues fell upon the nation of Egypt while Moses was doing his thing in the name of Jesus? Ten. There were 10 of them. Did you know that the first three of those plagues affected the Israelites and the nation of Egypt? But there were seven last plagues that only affected those who were not set apart by God. Mm, it's just like an exactly. Okay. And the same will be the case with the Avent movement. There will be seven last plagues that only will afflict the people who are trying to oppress the people of God. But the people of God will be spared. He makes this point. The purpose of the seven last plagues, like those of Egypt, is to expose the sin of creature worship and to prove to all that the Creator is the true and only God. Every plague that happened in Egypt was an assault upon the deities of Egypt the river god, the frog god all of them the sun god you know went totally dark god was going at strategic war with the folly of creature worship okay and the very heart of sunday observance is worshiping a creature who changed the creator's day are you understanding right they set up an image to the beast a man-made institution to worship not because god said to worship on that day but because man said to worship on that day Right? It's the big battle yet again, the showdown at the OK Corral, creature worship versus creator worship, which is why there's a call to worship him who made in the three angels' messages. And we'll get into that later, okay, this week. So the plagues cause every knee to bow and every tongue to confess the true God who in the persecuted saints have worshiped even unto death. Uh, they who worship the beast will find that the beast cannot protect them, but that the very object of their worship is smitten by the plague. So I think is also amazing. They see the futility of what they've been worshiping because they can't protect them or provide for them. And God shows them that super clearly. Okay. In both accounts, the deliverance from a death decree comes at midnight. Right, the Passover and the deliverance that comes to God's people is at midnight. And L. White says very clearly in the Great controversy that God's people will be delivered at midnight. We don't know when, um, but it's the same premise. When it's the darkest, right, the deliverance comes. The organization of the two movements are nearly identical. God was very structured in the way in which he raised up the Advent movement to set it up to do the greatest work to reach the world. Right, We're not set up in a situation where... Um, you know, like, it, there's a lot of, like, open to interpretation. There's a form of principle in the way that our tithe money operates, right? Justin Kim's going to teach a class for us this year on how the church works. How is the Advent church designed, and why was it designed that way? Why is it that my, ch- my tithe, in the local church, doesn't do- go directly to pay the pastor's salary? It goes up and then trickles down and meets the needs of the entire world church because we're a global movement. There's an organizational structure in place to ensure that people are prepared for the work they need to do, right? So, the fact that you have a local church, you have a local congregation, then you have a local conference, then you have a union, then you have a division, then you have the general conference at large. There's a reason for that in the same way that Jethro gave counsel to Moses on how they should organize themselves according to hundreds and fifties and tens and so forth, right? giving form of oversight so that administrators aren't burned out. There are people who can handle these things all along the way. Bigger picture things are handled by the general conference. Does that make sense? Okay, it's not exactly carbon copy of what Israel did, but there was a form of organization in both. Here's another point that Bunch makes. Health reform is a part of each of them. When the nation of Israel is brought out of Egypt, what does God do with their diet? <laughs> yeah, they, they, he put them on a recovery diet, Right. He simplified their diet. They were eating simple food, right? Getting exercise, sunshine, getting water, right? He was providing for their needs with simple, healthy food to help to clear their minds, to better enable them to worship him and serve him effectively, which is the entire purpose of the health message to the Avid movement. It's not to control you, to manipulate you, to make you miserable. The entire purpose of the health message is to make you lean, mean, fighting machines for the kingdom of God. That's it. To help you run on your ideal functioning faculties for your brain to be vibrant for your body to be vibrant to give active service for god to reach the world so israel was given that diet to purge and cleanse them to set them up for service what do they do with the gifts that god gave them they kept it to themselves like a bunch of narcissists right and so the purpose of the health message isn't to make me better than the other guy Or to judge the other guy is to give me the soundness of mind to be in tune with Jesus so that I can win the other guy. Are you understanding? Okay, so health reform was a big part of both movements. Both movements have been cursed with a mixed multitude who causes most of the trouble along the way. The compromisers and the complainers. Right? There's tremendous problems within the Advent movement for things like this, murmuring and complaining, people clamoring for positions, and I'm not getting political here. Don't read into the tea leaves things that I'm not saying. But there are things happening, like with Cora, Dathan, and Abiram, and other things where people are clamoring, Right, they're power-hungry in certain situations. All of this is going on at the same time because people were not content to just go where God was leading them and what He called them to individually right? Challenging structure, challenging leadership, and so forth. And again, I'm not getting political. I don't have a dog in this fight. Uh, A lot of these things are not black and white that we're arguing over right now, and people need to be honest enough to admit that. It's not that easy. It's complicated, difficult stuff we're working through as a movement. But the point is, we see trace elements of that still today, right? Uh, Which is unfortunate. All right. Here here he goes. Bunch again. Satan, through attacks from without and apostasies from within, tried to stop the Exodus movement and prevent it from reaching the Promised Land. But the same movement that left Egypt reached Canaan. Amen? The rebels being all purged out before they cross the Jordan. This is a big point. We'll come back to that, right? We have people who are trying to splinter off and start their own churches or people who are trying to claim to be Seventh-day Adventist Christians, but are wanting to live a message that is not what the Adventist church endorses or wanting to remove important components of what the Adventist church believes or the, well, I know you guys say the Bible says this, but we don't think so. We should be in whatever, right? Whatever the political heyday issues can be, whether it be our views on homosexuality or on diet, right? Like... There's a lot of things that, for whatever reason, things that are clearly written in the Bible and spirit of prophecy, people just say, eh, it doesn't really matter, we'll just do our own thing, right? Because it's culturally acceptable, or whatever the story may be. Um, Or, we don't know our history, and we think that we're chasing rabbits, when we're advocating for people who are underrepresented, and underserved, and who are oppressed, right? We're given a call to do that. The whole point of the Exodus was to rescue and deliver people from oppression. So why should we be silent when people are oppressed? That makes no sense. God was delivering people from oppression to prepare them for Canaan land. He's wanting to do the same thing today. We shouldn't be silent on these issues, right? It's super unfortunate that we are politicizing everything and not just studying and making biblical decisions. We are so caught up in drinking red Kool-Aid and blue Kool-Aid that we cannot distinguish between simple moral ethical calls as Christians. That's a problem. It's a big problem. And one of the reasons we're wandering in the wilderness is because we'd rather be politicians than Christians in both camps. Right? This whole situation is causing us difficulties along the way. Okay? All right. Listen to this one. Hosea 2.13. It says that by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet, he was preserved. Hosea 12.13. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet, he was preserved. This is from Bunch, um, kind of summarizing his point on this one, not quoting him directly. But it says, not by prophets, but by a prophet. Moses, that prophet, died in the borders of the Promised Land after being given a view of the inheritance. Before he died, however, the Lord gave him all the instruction necessary to take Israel through and establish them in the Promised Land. So even though Moses couldn't go with them, he gave them what they needed, the information and the instructions so that they could make it even without him, right? Not by prophets, but by a prophet, the Advent movement has been and will continue to be led and preserved. The prophet died on the border of Canaan after viewing and visioned the glories of the promised land. And through that prophet, the Lord gave all the instruction in detail to take the Advent people all the way through. You see the similar threads here, the overlapping threads? After their deliverance at the Red Sea, they sang the song of Moses. When you look in the book of Revelation, the Advent people, after the final crisis, will sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. Okay? They will not only understand the deliverance that God gave the people of Israel in Moses, they will also understand the role that the Lamb played in this whole process. They're adding to that story because they now see the Lamb, behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Not just the type in the sanctuary service, but the anti-type in Christ himself. Okay? It was supposed to be a short journey from Egypt to Canaan. But because of Israel's lack of faith in him who promised to fight their battles for them, the Lord had to take them a roundabout way. They could not enter the promised land until they had learned the lesson of victory and deliverance by faith. And this is super important. They could not enter the promised land until they learned the lesson of victory and deliverance by faith. So too with the Advent movement, the 1888 message was given by Jones and Wagner and was intended to prepare people to learn the lesson of victory and deliverance by faith, justification by faith, which is one of the reasons why you're reading lessons on faith right now, and why we'll be covering the message of justification by faith in the Three Angels Messages next week, okay? It's a super important theme. God is preparing his people to learn the lesson of victory and deliverance by faith and justification by faith. Okay. Taylor Bunch makes a very fascinating connection, which was what got me intrigued from the very beginning of this situation. He makes a connection from what happens in Numbers chapter 13 and 14 to the Advent movement. In Numbers chapter 13 and 14, the nation of Israel, not God, made a decision to send 12 spies into Egypt. God did not tell them to send 12 spies. God told them to take the land. They said, I don't know about this. Let's send spies to see if God's really telling the truth. Unbelief is what led them to send spies in the first place. God accommodates, just like he accommodated them with having a king and King Saul. God accommodates. They go out. And what does it look like? What happens as a result of the spies? What comes back to the people? There's a bad report. By how many of the 12? By 10 of them. But there were two people who were bringing good news, a good report to the people. What did the nation, yeah, Joshua and Caleb, right? What did the nation of Israel want to do with Joshua and Caleb according to the narrative of Numbers 13 and 14? stone them. They wanted them dead. I do not want to hear from you ever again. The point that Bunch makes is that they ignored the prophet and they ignored the people bringing the positive report. They scorned them and harassed them. Taylor Bunch makes the point that the same thing happened with Ella White, E.J. Wagner, and A.T. Jones. And Ella White actually makes that connection that Jones and Wagner were those two bringing the positive report. Jones and Wagner were sent to bring good news to the people, and we rejected that message. People will tell you, we initially, you know, kind of hesitated, but we eventually accepted it. You cannot find that in the history books. You will not hear that from Ella White's mouth. You will not hear that from Jones and Wagner's mouth. You will not hear that from A.G. Daniels, who did the research to see what happened with that whole situation, and you're not gonna hear it from Taylor Bunch. There's a reason we are wandering in the wilderness right now. It's because of this. The nation of Israel wandered 40 years in the wilderness unnecessarily because they rejected the good news that was brought to them by Moses, Caleb, and Joshua. And the modern-day Advent movement is currently wandering in the wilderness for the exact same reasons. We rejected Ellen White. We sent her to Australia. She was not called to go there. She says that clearly. But she went to honor church authority, which is very fascinating in some of our political discussions right now. Even though that was not the call that God had given, she chose to honor church authority. She gets sent to Australia. When the first version of Steps to Christ was written by Ellen White, the Seventh-day Adventist Church refused to publish it. It was published by Sunday Keepers. We did not publish that, yes, because that's Jones and Wagner stuff. When W.W. Prescott, who initially resisted the 1888 message, he was the president of what we know today as Andrews University. It was the Battle Creek College at that stage, was still our seminal seminary or our flagship seminary. He was fighting the message, and you're going to read this in Ron Duffield's book, Return of the of Rain, Volume 1, in your book club. I'll give you that later. But he makes this point, and and clearly documented history, that there came a point in time uh, whenever W.W. Prescott literally stands up before the entire student body and his own faculty who work for him. He stands up and weeps before the people uncontrollably for multiple minutes really awkward when someone's doing that for that long. And he eventually gets out of his mouth that I have been fighting against the Lord and fighting this message. W. W. Prescott falls on the rock and is broken and becomes a champion for the gospel message. Now he struggled later and even struggled with the spirit of prophecy later, which is so unfortunate that gospel preachers that God raised up in this movement, and there's points in that we'll come back to. But Prescott, what he would begin to do, even while he was the president of the college, was that he would actually start his evangelistic series with what he referred to as a quote-unquote series of gospel meetings. Instead of jumping into Daniel 2 and the signs of the times, he would preach the gospel to people for like a week, and then he would go into the Advent message. But the way in which he preached the Advent message was so saturated in the gospel, no one felt like they were being indoctrinated or catechized. They were just falling in love with Jesus while learning precious truths from the scriptures that we cherish the Seventh-day Adventists. And so when Ellen White gets kicked out of the country and sent to Australia and Jones and Wagner, their ability to influence a church was limited. They were ostracized. They weren't invited to sit in certain pulpits and so forth. This all happened. It's a repetition of the history of Egypt we did Ella white says this we have nothing to fear for the future except that we forget the way the lord has led us in our past and in our teachings and in his teachings we did not and she was giving warnings about this whole situation giving warnings and i'll show you some here in just a moment leading into the general conference in 1888 pay attention we're on the borders of canaan pay attention we're on the borders of canaan we made the same mistake still even though God set us up to succeed. He set the nation of Israel up to succeed in Genesis 15 too. We'll talk about that later. The very counsel he gave Abraham in Genesis 15 is the counsel that Joshua and Caleb heed in 430 years later. They realized the iniquity of the Amorites is full. We can take the land. It doesn't matter how big they are or what's going on. God was faithful in the past. He said we would come to this moment. We will believe what God has said in spite of what we see and we will take that land. And they weren't even a fight with arms. God would take out their enemies, we're told. They didn't listen. They did their own thing. And they wandered in the wilderness because of it. And we are wandering in the wilderness for the same reasons. And so Ella White was shipped to Australia. She's there. Camp meetings at that stage were not these esoteric Adventist gatherings where we just eat veggie meat and talk about stuff that we like. It was an evangelistic series. And they were inviting people to the evangelistic series, and people would not come to the meetings because they thought what they would hear from Seventh-day Adventists is nothing but Moses and Sinai. Direct quote from the people. All we're going to hear is Moses and Sinai. They're a bunch of legalists that are just going to talk about the law. And at that stage, they were already believing that Seventh-day Adventist Christians were anti-Trinitarians, and we're not. We are not. But that was a view by people at that stage. So Prescott did something that was amazingly innovative at that stage. Ella White's assistant was transcribing. She was writing out word for word what, so I'll backtrack a little bit. Ella White clamored for the church to send Jones to the camp meeting, and they said no. She asked again, send Jones to the camp meeting. They say no. Then she says, send Prescott. They say no. She says again, please send Prescott to camp meeting. They finally send Prescott. And as he's preaching, Ellen White's assistant is transcribing these things, and they print them. As soon as she has it transcribed, they type it up, they print it, and they're distributing these tracks within a day or two of when he preached it. He was live streaming before that was even a thing. And he was prese- they were giving these tracks to the community, and people were reading the stuff that Prescott was saying, and it got them intrigued. He said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. And they go to these meetings, and, and if you read the preface to this book I'm going to tell you about, or there's two ways you can get it, but if you read the preface to, it's either called In the Spirit's Power as a printed version, In the Spirit's Power by W.W. W. Prescott, P-R-E-S-C-O-T-T, write it on the board here. Or you can also just Google this phrase, Armadale. This is in Armadale, Australia, Armadale Sermons. Just Google that and then type W.W. Prescott. And you will find a free PDF that you can read. Even missionaries can afford that. Amen? And if you read the preface to this book, it's a compilation of comments that Ella White made about this event. I have never seen her speak so glowingly about a model of evangelism as she does in those comments. She says people would walk onto that property and their faces would go pale. And they would say, this man is inspired. Not an inspiring speaker, like literally the Spirit of God has inspired this man and is speaking to me. Other people would say, we have never seen Jesus preach like this. Speaking of the people who would only talk about Moses and Sinai, right? Their entire view changed. Yes. So this this, met, this method, or this, this model that you're talking about is present truth saturated in the gospel of the Christ. That's exactly right. Okay. And so this is where she says. I'll keep going on that. So she says, and she may be quoting somebody at this stage, but where they would say that not one of those messages would I consider to be a quote unquote doctrinal discourse. But then they say what was preached. The nature of Christ, creation, the Sabbath, the law of God. He dealt with the mark of the beast in those messages. He was preaching the Adventist message, but it didn't feel like the typical evangelistic series where the preacher goes up front, kicks the Pope for 45 minutes, probably an hour, right? Or bags on evangelical theology. That is not the model that Ellen White endorsed. Now, I'm not saying we're not to preach our distinct, unique truths. But the point is, the, art, the, the, the discussion itself was not phrased in the argumentative format. In fact, I would strongly encourage you to do some research. Go into the Ella White app and search this word. Argumentative. Search that in the Ella White app. Get on the website, egwwritings.org. You can go to the actual app. Scroll through what Ella White says about an argumentative approach. She hated it. She says it doesn't work and it causes more people to leave than to come in. But if you look at the way that we're generally doing public evangelism right now, we are arguing with evangelical ministers who aren't even in the room, they're not even there, right? And so we need to be intentional in following the counsel we were given on how to approach this message. Because she endorsed it. So she sent one of the pamphlets, she sent one of them from Prescott's messages to the publishing house in America and said, publish this. And the response that she got from them was, no. And the reason why was quote unquote, doctrinal differences. Now, I am not saying the Advent church is in Babylon. I am not saying the Advent church is an apostasy. I would never say that. I committed my life to this movement. I work for the church. But what I am saying is there is a dark chapter in our history that has not been fully reckoned with, which is why we are still currently wandering in the wilderness and not in Canaan land. Are you understanding the difference? And the model that she endorsed for public evangelism, she said, this is the way that we should be doing evangelism going forward. We didn't. Most of our evangelistic series today are still us arguing with evangelicals instead of saturating every Adventist belief with the truth of Jesus Christ and His character and His love for fallen humanity. Are you understanding? There was a vision Ellen White was given of a massive temple-type structure, and people were going into this temple... And she kind of goes, do I go, do I not go, do I go, do I not go? She eventually goes in, and as she gets into this temple, she says there was one massive pillar holding up the entire edifice. And tied to that pillar was a lamb all mangled and bleeding. And everyone seemed to know that it was suffering on their behalf. The point that she was making is that the foundational teaching of the Advent movement, what upholds this whole structure, is a suffering messiah it's the cross and she also made a statement that all of the individual teachings and things that we cherish and the beliefs that we cherish all of those find their power in relation to this theme the theme of the cross she said every one of those beliefs find their power in relation to the theme of the cross so notice we're not saying don't preach that message and don't preach those things we absolutely should I preach them I just did an evangelistic series this spring doing this approach where you see Jesus at the heart of every single teaching. We believe in public evangelism. You're gonna be giving Bible studies. You're canvassing. We're not saying don't do what we've been doing. We're saying don't do it the way that we've been doing it because that wasn't the model she endorsed Are you understanding? The model she endorsed that will have the greatest success is showing Jesus at the heart of every teaching. And that happened in the Advent movement. And again, if we don't know our history, we're doomed to repeat the failures of our past, which is why we mentioned it, okay? All right, anyway. Um, so we rejected Jones and Wagner and L. White, all three of them, and so we're wandering the wilderness as a result of it. Here's the next parallel. They had to have an understanding of the law and the sanctuary to be prepared to enter into the Promised Land. The two of the things that were first given, that's speaking of the nation of Israel, coming out, right? The first two things that God taught them was the sanctuary service and the law of God. Yeah? When the Avent Movement, right after the Great Disappointment happened, what were the two th- things that were brought before the, the, the people of God, the Avent people? A clear understanding of the sanctuary and the law of God, the validity of the law of God, Joseph Bates being shown the Sabbath and everything else. Okay, so the immutability of the law and the sanctuary message and its significance to the plan of salvation. This is from Patriarchs and Prophets. God had made it their privilege and their duty to enter the land at the time of his appointment, but through their willful neglect, that permission had been withdrawn, speaking of the nation of Israel this is from the great controversy. It was not the will of God that Israel should wander 40 years in the wilderness. He desired to lead them directly to the land of Canaan and establish them there, a holy, happy people. But they could not enter in because of unbelief. God's purpose had to alter because of their unbelief. And we're told the same thing about the Advent movement. There's a very Heartbreaking statement from the Spirit of Prophecy. It's in Faith and Works 45, and I forget which paragraph, 45.1 or 45.3. But in that book, L. White makes a statement that when God lets man have his own way, it's the darkest hour of his life. And it doesn't necessarily end with it being the darkest hour of his life. Many generations to come suffer when that's the case, Right? How many people suffered because Israel did not live up to their ideal? And how many people are still suffering today because the Advent movement has not fully reached its potential? Are souls being saved? Is amazing missionary work happening? Yes. But have we reached our full potential? And are we still on earth when we shouldn't be still on earth? Yeah. And here's why. We're wandering in the wilderness. Are you understanding? Okay. This is God's movement. This is God's ideal. And I believe that Adventism's best days are just before us. We will reach our full potentials of movement. I fully believe that. But right now, we're not there. And this is part of us accepting the Laodicean message, that we're not who we think we are. We don't have it all figured out. We don't have it all together, because if we did, Jesus would be here by now. Are you with me? The truth speaks for itself, right? All right, Hebrews 4, verse 1. And I'll try to land this plane here pretty quick. Hebrews chapter 4, and verse 1. commenting on the nation of Israel and current Israel. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering His rest, God still wants to bring that rest to His people that Israel refused, that promise still remains, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. That promise still remains. God's desire to bless His people and bring them to Canaan still remains, but you need to be careful that you don't disqualify yourself by rejecting the message it was meant to bring us there. Are you understanding? Okay. This is bunch again. He says, when Israel turned back from the borders of the promised land into the wilderness, because of their lack of faith and unbelief, it was the beginning of a retreat towards Egypt, but they did not go all the way back to Egypt. The next 38 years was spent wandering about the mountains of Seir they didn't return to Egypt, neither did they make any progress towards Canaan. And this is where the current Advent movement finds itself. We're not in Canaan, but we're not going back to where we used to be, right? The churches that we came out of, we're just kind of stuck in this approach avoidance gradient. They've done this test on mice to figure out kind of what motivates them and what impact fear can have. And they found that when they would, a mouse would be in this little bedroom in this little, you know, playhouse thing they'd have to observe it, they'd put food in a bowl. The mouse would run from its bed over to the bowl and eat the food. But when they put electrical wire in between, Er, doctor I don't think it's doctor, but Lewis Walton talks about this in one of his presentations called The Role of the Law in Salvation. It's super good. We'll probably talk about it at some point this year. But he talks about this approach avoidance gradient that the mouse would go towards the bowl and get zapped, right? Because it wants the food. And now it's stuck because it doesn't want to get zapped, but it also doesn't want to go back to its room because it wants the food. And then they call this the kind of approach avoidance gradient. We can't go forward because we're afraid of getting hurt, but we also don't want to go backwards because we do want what's on the other side. And the Avent Movement somehow finds itself in this type of approach avoidance gradient. We're not in Canaan land, but we're also not back where we came from. We're just kind of struggling in the middle. Okay? Kind of like lukewarm not being hot or not being cold. Exactly right. Yeah, this is the Laodicean condition. We don't recognize that we're not hot or cold. We're just here. Right? We have an institution, we're doing ministry, we're doing soul winning, and stuff is happening, but we have not reached our full potential. We'd be home by now if that was the case. So we can't project ourselves as being the victorious remnant when we're still wandering in the wilderness. Are you understanding? If we truly were the victorious remnant, we'd be on the sea of glass, not on a broken, defiled earth waiting for our deliverance. Do you understand that? Okay? We still need that divine solution that's found in Jesus, in his righteousness, in a faith that works by love, and in a spiritual discernment to recognize our true condition, that we're not there yet. You understanding? There are many things that we have gotten right as a movement that have been a tremendous blessing to the world, but we have not arrived yet. There is still room for improvement and growth. And until we accept that difficult message, and that is the straight testimony that shakes the church, by the way. The straight testimony is the Laodicean message, not telling people they don't eat right or dress right or get out. That's not what's being talked about. Our present truth brethren, some of them, they distort and mangle that comment that Ellen White makes. This straight testimony is every individual recognizing who they really are and why we're still here. Are you understanding? L. White's super clear in the faith I live by 111. What is justification by faith? It's the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man now which it is not in his power to do for himself. And when men see their nothingness, they're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Part of the solution to the Laodicean problem is recognizing your nothingness so that you can be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That's the faith I live by 111. Okay. In fact, there's a statement right after that paragraph that's amazing. Let me see if I can find that real quick. FLB 111. Listen to this. Those whom, uh, well, let me see here. Yeah, the righteousness of Christ as pure as white pearl has no defect, no stain, no guilt. This righteousness may be ours. Salvation with its blood-bought inestimable treasures is the pearl of great price. The thought that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, credited to us, not because of any merit on our part but as a free gift from God is a precious thought. The enemy of God and man is not willing that this truth should be clearly presented for he knows that if the people receive it fully, his power is broken. Did you hear that? Satan understands that when this message that Jones and Wagner and Ella White were bringing before the church is accepted by the people, his own power will be broken. Well, this is why we're wandering in the wilderness. He doesn't want it to succeed. So, we're going to have to make an intelligent, rational, and missional decision. Do I want to remain here and see people suffer, or do I want to acknowledge the fact that I'm not who I think I am, that we are not who we think we are, and that there's room for improvement, and it's found in the righteousness of Christ? Not in our achievements, not in our mission stations, not in our schools and whatever prestigious results they're getting, not in our hospitals and whatever prestigious results they're getting. You understanding? It's only going to be found when we fall on the rock and are broken and recognize the deficiency of the righteousness of Christ in each individual's personal experience. Not in our corporate achievements. The church is growing. Praise God for that. We're not home yet, and there's a reason for that. Each Adventist is going to have to look in the mirror and acknowledge what they aren't in the sight of God and cling to the merits of Jesus. Then we're going home. Do you see that? We can rejoice in the power and potential of this movement. We can pay a faithful tithe and be thankful to be active members in our local churches. But if we are not looking in the mirror individually and asking God to show us who we really are and what we don't bring to the table, we're gonna keep wandering, guys. This is an individual call and a corporate call to recognize what we aren't and to find our sufficiency in Christ and His righteousness. Yes. We can be, certainly. Yes. Exactly. That we are God's chosen people. We are favored. We're ready. And Jesus came to try to show them, you don't get it, guys. This isn't about you. This isn't about your temple and your structure. I, I'm the fulfillment of all of this, right? I'm the true Israelite, Jesus is saying. Okay. All right. Anyway, going back to this, the next 38 years were spent wandering about the mountains of Seir. They didn't return to Egypt and neither did they make any progress towards Canaan. They were practically at a standstill. Acts seven twenty-nine tells us that in their hearts, they turned back into Egypt. And listen to this. This is Taylor Bunch again, 40 years in the wilderness and type in and I type. He says, it seems sad that Caleb and Joshua had to spend all those years in the wilderness because of no fault of their own. But their only hope of reaching the promised land was to remain with the movement and organization. This is where offshoots are dead wrong. Well, the church is, you know, they won't say the church is Babylon, uh, though there are many YouTube channels that are alluding to things like this, and those YouTube channels should be burned to the ground they are not Seventh-day Adventists. They are not preaching present truth. They are flying in the face of God and His precious movement. And they should not be doing what they're doing. They are not on God's side. They are warring with God while claiming to stand for God. And God does not endorse them. He does not endorse them. Websites, YouTube things, all this nonsense, claiming to have all the light that we've got it all figured out and everybody else is wrong, that's not what's going on here. Okay? Leaving the movement is not the solution. You see things you don't like? Leaving doesn't fix the problem, guys. Joshua and Caleb didn't leave. They waited for the movement 40 years and went with the movement into the promised land. Are you with me? This is super important, guys. Super, super important, okay? had they attempted to start another movement bunch says by calling out the faithful and taking a shorter course it would have ended in disaster for the pillar of cloud by night and the cloud or the pillar of fire by night and cloud by day led the original movement back into the wilderness but it remained with them during their pilgrimage god did not leave the movement even though they were not where he wanted them to be god remained with them as they wandered in the wilderness so for people to read into something that I'm saying now, to think that I'm saying the movement's lost or whatever, I'm not saying that. God is still with us and blessing us in spite of the fact that we're wandering. But we don't have to keep wandering. Are you understanding? This is what God's trying to get through our thick skulls. You don't have to keep wandering. And the, the pillar of cloud led them out 40 years later. Okay? While they had rebelled against him, still they were his chosen people, and he loved them more than any people on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 3, 33 verses 1 and 3 says that. Yea, he loved the people, all his saints are they in his hand. The only hope of sharing in this love was by remaining with and loyal to the movement and its leadership. It's from Taylor Bunch. Leaving is not gonna solve it. Okay? This was the mistake of Jones and Wagner. They were frustrated by what they saw. And this is where they failed to fully fulfill their mission as Joshua and Caleb. They left before the movement got into Canaan, which is unfortunate. Okay? This is not what God's intention was for this scenario. All of these things were typical of experience of the Advent movement. Okay? The remnant church must reach its own Kadesh Barnea moment on the borders of the heavenly Canaan and because of unbelief be turned back into the wilderness. And this happened in 1888. Okay, Jones and Wagner left, and that's why they didn't end up as God intended, like Joshua and Caleb, as we just mentioned. Okay, guys, we cannot afford to lose young gospel preachers right now. We can't afford to lose them. This is not the time for people to be leaving. We need you now more than ever. So if you recognize that there's something wrong and that the gospel needs to be more fully presented before the people, then that means you can't leave. You need to be that Jones and that Wagner. You need to be that... Joshua and Caleb to ensure that this message actually goes before the people. You have to. We're not going home without it. And when Elle White says there's going to be young people who finish the work, she's talking about this type of work. Okay, Not just young people giving Bible studies, it's young people giving the most precious message in the Bible studies. It's young people not just preaching the Advent message to people, but preaching Christ at the center of the Advent message to the people. Do you you see what's going on here? The message that heaven ordained. So we were told that the latter rain was falling in 1889, 90, 91, 92, 93. Ellen White is very clear. The loud cry was being given to the world in that season. Did you know that? Pentecost happened in the Avent movement, and most of our people don't even know that. And when this was taking place, it was to prepare the world for what was to come. So the same thing is going to need to be our model that we give before the world. Same story. Okay. The same situation, and That's it, the <laughs> all right. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so I want to pick up now. I'm going to read a segment here from uh, his book, and then I'll give you guys some resources, and we're done. Okay. I don't know how long I've been going. I'm sorry for whatever it is, but this is just this is going to set the course for the whole week. Okay. I have no idea what this is. Can are they done though? Okay, they're done. That's fine. All right. So, picking up on page 20. Listen, this is is Taylor Bunch's connection to everything we've been talking about, okay? This is super important, and I'll show you guys how to get this book on Amazon, okay, if you want it. The Advent movement reaches Kadesh Barnea moment at Minneapolis General Conference in the fall of 1888. For two or three years previous to that notable gathering, the Lord, through the Spirit of Prophecy, sent message after message to this people, declaring that they were on the borders of heavenly Canaan and calling for a great spiritual awakening in preparation for the second coming of Christ. This was the anti-type of the message to Israel just before they reached Kadesh Barnea, that you've dwelt long enough in this mount. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore unto your fathers. That's mentioned twice. You've dwelt along this mountain long enough, it's time to go in. Okay, That was God's message to the Advent movement in 1888 leading into this. Here's the dates, 1879. This is Ellen White. We are now on the very borders of the eternal world, 1881. The end of all things is at hand, 1881. I have been shown that we are standing upon the threshold of the eternal world, 1885. We are standing upon the very verge of the eternal world, 1885. Eternal stre- eternity stretches before us. The curtain is about to be lifted. Now. Some people will take these types of statements from Ella White, who do not believe in the Spirit of Prophecy or the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and say, Ella White said Jesus was coming and He didn't come. She's a false prophet. No. We rejected the message and are wandering in the wilderness, and Babylonians are now scorning God and His message, not because of the message, but because people didn't respond to the message. you understanding? We gave fuel to the fire of the enemies of this movement by rejecting the message and making these pressing messages sound like it was foolishness. Are you seeing this? When God lets man have his own way, it's the darkest hour of his life. There are consequences to these decisions. Okay, did you have a question? On the borders of the promised land, because they didn't go in, that oh, God was wrong. Right. So, like, basically, the two parallels, like, one, one um, fills in questions about the other. That's exactly right. Very, 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 simple. And this is why knowing the parallels is important, right? This isn't a stretch, no. right? There are clear parallels with both situations. There was also a solemn call for a revival and reformation and the appropriation of the righteousness of Christ in preparation for entrance into the heavenly kingdom. A revival of true godliness is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs, Ellen White says. If Satan had his way, there would never be another awakening, great or small, to the end of time. Practically every issue... Of the review, for months before 1888 contained earnest and heart-searching calls for a spiritual awakening, they would give God's people a vision of their Laodicean condition and of Christ and His righteousness as the only remedy. Was God setting them up to succeed? Volume 5 of the Testimonies was written just before 1888, and is filled with messages warning of the nearness of the end and the needed preparation for the soon-coming crisis. During the Minneapolis Conference, righteousness by faith and a preparation for the end was the burden of almost every message. The servant of the Lord was present and fully identified herself with the message. Speaking of it later, she said, The Lord in His great mercy sent a most precious message to His people. The message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, preaching Jesus on the cross, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith in the surety in Jesus. And it invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. Then she says, many had lost sight of Jesus. Could that still be the case today? They needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merits, his changeless love for the human family. All power is given into his hands that he may dispense rich gifts unto men, imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness to the helpless human agent. Remember, when men see their nothingness, they're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ this is the message that god commanded to be given to the world it is the third angel's message which we're talking about this next week which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his spirit in a large measure from the above statement it's evident that the lord intended to pour out his spirit in the latter rain and quickly finish the work this is also evident from the statement in the review and herald november 22 1892 The time of test is just upon us, for the loud cry of the third angel has already begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ, the sin-pardoning Redeemer. She makes the connection, and so does Ron Duffield in his book, that the loud loud cry in the latter rain, or the latter rain specifically, is not just something that you pray for. The latter rain is heaven's endorsement to propel this message of Christ's righteousness to the world. So, you cannot pray for the latter rain when you're not preaching the message of Christ our righteousness, because you're fighting against the very thing that will lead to it. The two things that will lead to the outpouring of the latter rain are the preaching of the message of Christ's righteousness and much fervent prayer. So, we're only doing one of these two things, and there's a reason why the latter rain isn't falling right now. Are you understanding? But it was falling then because they were preaching it then. So the latter rain is heaven's endorsement to empower and propel a message that needs to go to the world. You follow me? Okay. This is the beginning of the light of the angel whose glory was shall fill the whole earth. She's quoting Revelation 18. But many begin to f- begin, this is now a, uh, Bunch commenting again, Many began to fear fanaticism, and the meeting that began with such a signal manifestation of God's presence and blessings ended in wrangling and confusion. Many felt that the message given was a departure from the good old doctrines that had made us a people, and they rejected it. There's a warning to us here. In Testimonies to Ministers, pages 89 to 98, is a chapter entitled Rejecting the Light and contains a most scathing rebuke to those who rejected that message. It must have been as terrible in the sight of the Lord as the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea, for it resulted in the same punishment, a turning back into the wilderness. Just as Israel murmured in their tents and criticized God's chosen leader who was endeavoring to lead them into the Promised Land, so modern Israel reenacted those scenes at Minneapolis in 1888. Ellen White again, God has raised up his messengers to do a work for this time. Son had turned from the message of the righteousness of Christ to criticize the men and their imperfections. And Ellen White made a statement during that time. She says, even if these guys fall away, this message is heaven sent and should be heeded. Before Jones and Wagner fell away, Ellen White said, this message is so heaven sent that even if these guys were to fall, you still should obey the message. So, their imperfection should not keep you from obeying and listening and preaching the same message. Yes? Did you say anything about them still making it heaven though? We don't have any answer fully on that to to kind of know. Jones left the church, became a um, church of God. He became a seventh day other church member at one point, in other situations, and I don't know the full, full, you know, length of what transpires with that, because their story's a bit different than William Miller, but... Um, all right. So she says it must uh, no. just as Israel murmured in their tents and criticized God's chosen leader who was endeavoring to lead them into the promised land. So modern Israel reenacted those same scenes at Minneapolis Ellen God has raised up his messengers to do his work for this time. Son have turned from the message of the, of the righteousness of Christ to criticize the men and their imperfections. But then she says Christ has registered all the hard, proud, sneering speeches spoken against his servants as against himself. I shall never again, I think, she says, be called to stand under the direction of the Holy Spirit as I stood at Minneapolis. She literally says that she was never more prompted by the Spirit of God than during the Minneapolis meetings. And as you read through Duffield's book, she literally says, I'm going to leave. I can't even be around this. It's so bad. I'm leaving. And God told her, stand by your post. And she kept clamoring with the people, stop fighting this message. Stop warring with this message. You need to listen. She says, I was never more filled with the Spirit of God than in those meetings in Minneapolis because of how important it was for us to receive it. The presence of Jesus was with me. All assembled in that meeting had an opportunity to place themselves on the side of truth by receiving the Holy Spirit, which was sent by God in such a rich current of love and mercy. But in the rooms occupied by some of our people were heard ridicule, criticism, jeering, and laughter. The manifestations of the Holy Spirit were attributed to fanaticism. The scenes which took place at that meeting made the God of heaven ashamed to call those who took part in them his brethren. All this, the heavenly watcher noticed, and it was written in the book of God's remembrance. She does not play around with this. This was so serious, guys. And then this is back to Bunch. That the Lord fully intended to take modern Israel into heavenly Canaan over 40 years ago is evident from the following statements from the Spirit of Prophecy. If these had done their work, the world would now have been warned, ere this, again from Ella White, had the purpose of God been carried out by His people in giving to the world the message of mercy, Christ would ere this have come to the earth and the saints would have received their welcome into the city of God. Another statement from Ella White. Had the people of God preserved a living connection from the beginning of the Avent movement, they would today be in the heavenly Canaan. We are unnecessarily wandering in the wilderness, says the living prophet. Okay. Because of their unbelief manifested in the rejection of the message sent to prepare them for the heavenly Canaan, the Lord had to alter His purpose and turn the Advent people back into the wilderness of sin till they learned the lesson of faith. That's Bunch. His people have been far behind. Human agencies under the divine planning may recover something of what is lost because the people who had great light did not have corresponding piety, sanctification, and zeal. In working out God's specified plans, man cannot possibly stretch over the gulf that has been made by the workers who have not been following the divine leader. We can't fix that. We may have to remain here in this world, she says, because of insubordination many more years added to the children of Israel. But for Christ's sake, his people should not add sin to sin. We're wandering, and there's a reason for it. Don't make it any worse. Repent for what happened and move forward. That's what she says. That's what she's implying. This is her again. The history of ancient Israel is, and we're like three paragraphs and we're done with this quote. She says, The history of ancient Israel is a striking illustration of the past experience of the Adventist body. God led the people in the Advent movement, even as He led the children of Israel from Egypt. If all who labored unitedly in the work in 1844 had received the third angel's message and proclaimed it in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord would have wrought mightily with their efforts. A flood of light would have been shed upon the world years ago. The inhabitants of the earth would have been warned and the closing work completed and Christ would have come for the redemption of his people. It was not the will of God that Israel should wander 40 years in the wilderness. He desired to lead them directly into the land of Canaan and establish them there a holy, happy people, but they could not enter in because of unbelief. Because of their backsliding and apostasy, they perished in the desert and others were raised up to enter the promised land. In like manner, it was not the will of God that the coming of Christ should be so long delayed and his people should remain so many years in this world of sorrow and sin. But unbelief separated them from God. We're still here. And let me read one more paragraph and I'll make an application of that. Thus, the coming of Christ had to be delayed, and the church entered into the tearing time. This is Bunch talking now, not Ellen White. This also explains the parable of the ten virgins. All went forth to meet the bridegroom, but because he tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Scores of statements in the spirit of prophecy declare that God's people are asleep ministers and lay members. To the ten virgins there came an awakening cry Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. All heard the message. But only five or half of them made a necessary preparation to enter into the marriage. At the close of the tarrying time, there will be given an awakening message to the advent people. That's the Laodicean message, I believe. How sad that many will not heed its warning and make the necessary preparation to enter the kingdom and partake of the marriage supper of the Lamb. The preparation necessary is to accept as a gift and put on the robe of Christ's righteousness. That's the answer. That's the call and we're still here because we haven't heeded it. Guys, we just have to wrap our minds around what happened. Jesus wanted to come in response to giving the church that message, and we're still here. World War I happened since we rejected that message. World War II happened since we rejected that message. The Vietnam War happened since we rejected that message, right? Pandemics and crises have all taken place and suffering has happened in this world because we did not receive this message. What should motivate us and propel us to preach the Three Angels messages to the world is understanding the solemn charge that God has given to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, not just to preach the good news to people, but to end their suffering and to end his suffering. L. White says many people when thinking about you know, the, the, the closing of the earth's events, think about themselves, but very few give thought to the, the amount of pain that God has endured from the entrance of sin into this world. We don't give thought to what God is suffering, let alone what the world is suffering. We just want Jesus to come so that I don't have to suffer anymore. Well, Jesus can't come until we repent and accept this message and then give it to the world. That's why we're still here. It's simple math, guys. The living prophet has spoken. It's very clear what's going on. This is our ticket home. So don't pray Jesus comes soon. If you're not gonna study this message, receive this message for yourself and give it to the world because he can't until that happens. Does that make sense? I'm not saying don't pray. I'm saying if you're gonna pray, do this or your prayer can't be answered. Does that make sense? Has this made sense? It's a solemn charge. I get it guys. I'm wrestling with it right now. But the entire purpose of this core program is to help you understand this message at the heart of every teaching. When we go through the Adventist Fundamental Beliefs, you will see Jesus. When we go through the Three Angels Messages next week, by God's grace, you will see Jesus. And we will give you the tools to do something about this. Okay? But just take it seriously. Okay? There's a call that we're given, and this really matters. When God lets man have his own way, it's the darkest hour of his life. World War I. World War II, the Vietnam War, Iraq, Afghanistan, all other circumstances, the the plague of communism, North Korea, China, all of this is going on because of something that is in our power to do something about it. Are you understanding? God, I, I know that you have challenged us this evening, but I pray that these seeds would be deeply lodged in our heart and in our mind, that there's a call that we've been given to know this message. And so I pray that as uh, we give a resource list at the close of this prayer, that you would give us the diligence to search and study and make this our own so that we're ready to share this message with the world so that we can put an end to your suffering and the world's suffering and that you can come to take us home. God, forgive us. We repent for rejecting this message, for wandering in the wilderness, and we pray, O oh God, that you would awaken us and deploy us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.